Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Soundstage Axis, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and our guest this week is Floyd Norman, a legendary Disney animator and writer whose work includes 101 Dalmatians, The Sword in the Stone, and The Hunchback of Notre Dame, to name a few. In our episode, we cover a wide range of topics, from Floyd's early beginnings working at the Disney Animation Studios in the spring of 1956, his work on Sleeping Beauty and the Jungle Book, his relationship with Walt Disney himself, and much more. So without further ado, let's go to our conversation. Floyd, thank you so, so much for joining us. It's, it's really a pleasure. And I know drawing has been in your nature, art in general. You know, you grew up in Santa Barbara in the 30s and 40s. And it just made me smile to hear you talk about the fact when you were a kid, you'd use any wall and surface as an opportunity to draw and express yourself. And that just speaks volumes about, you know, the way you love art. I would love to just dive right in. After many years of dreaming and going to art school, you eventually do begin working at Disney. And I can only imagine with artists and writers and designers and painters, what a creative environment it must have been. And I was wondering if you could take us back and share with you what was it like to look at this place with the eyes of, of someone like you when you began working in the animation building in the spring of 56? What were the atmospheres in the hallways of Disney with the nine old men? And what was the average number of drawings you feel like the best animators could pull off in a single day? Well, it was uh, an amazing time. My first visit to the Walt Disney Studio was before I started there as an employee. I visited as a high school student. I was in nearby Santa Barbara. Uh, drove down to the Walt Disney Studio one Saturday morning and walked through those magical gates one quiet Saturday morning for a meeting that I had with a Disney uh, personnel director. I didn't return until years later when I was actually a Disney employee. This was after a few years going to art school. And when I arrived at Disney back in 1956, once again, it was uh, even more magical because now I was there on a regular basis with many artists, writers, directors, designers, technicians, carpenters, musicians. I tell you, it was a creative wonderland. Uh, I don't know how one could describe it. It's such a different studio than the studio that exists today. Not to say there's no creativity at Disney today, but back in the 1950s, Walt Disney was all about creativity and innovation. And it was just an exciting time you came in as an animator, but I was doing a lot of research in preparation for this. And your very first feature film was you were working as an in-betweener on 1959's Sleeping Beauty. No, I'm really not supposed to speak to strangers, but we've met before. I know you, I walked with you once It's remarkable, you know, to, to realize how... I don't want to use the word desperate, but how attached the company was at the time to get the film completed, given the amount of money they had invested to complete it. So you were working as an in-betweener on the characters of, you know, Prince Philip and his horse and letter upgraded to the fairy unit. So what did working on Sleeping Beauty teach you about yourself as an animator? Well, keep in mind, when we came in as kids, we were not animators. We were animation artists, but we were uh, on the lowest rung 
of the animation ladder. That is, we were we were uh, apprentices, we were assistants, we were kids learning the business, learning the ropes of animation. But what it provided for us was, in a sense, an animation boot camp, where we, as young trainees, were thrown into the fray, and we had to learn how to become animation artists. Oh, come now, Prince Philip. Why so melancholy? A wondrous future lies before you. You, the destined hero of a charming fairy tale come true. Now, having done that, uh, it was probably, looking back on it, uh, the best training any artist could ever have had. Because here we were, in training, being mentored by the Disney greats. The people we worked for and worked with were the incredible men and women who made the Disney classic films. The standards were very high. Uh, the level of work, the quality, the highest. And that's what Walt Disney demanded. So imagine all of us kids, many of us just out of art school, suddenly having our first job, suddenly having to become professionals and be mentored and taught by these wonderful Disney artists. It was an amazing time. Hard work, of course, but a time of great training and learning. The film took five to six years to complete, and it was a very tough time for everyone, but you also define it as one of the most well-crafted, and I couldn't agree more. I was really curious, correct me if I'm wrong, but initially most women were relegated to the ink and paint department, mainly because, I don't know, if they thought they had a more delicate touch or something. Well, that is a pretty misunderstood subject, and Mindy Johnson has a new book out, Ink and Paint, The uh, Women of Disney Animation, and it, it kind of gives, a, I think, a clear picture of what went on back then, because, not true, uh, there were a lot of women in the ink and paint department, and that's because it was one of those jobs that was meticulous and tedious. And it was just found that women were better at doing this work than men were. Now, on the other hand, we did have many women who worked in the animation department. And I think that's one of the misunderstood things about Disney. Uh, there's an attitude that Disney did not uh, allow women uh, the opportunity to be uh, background artists and layout artists and animators. And our directors, uh, that's not true. There were many, many women working in, in animation, even as far back as the 1950s. And one of the things that I find interesting is that one of my first bosses in Walt Disney's commercial division was Phyllis Harrell, a woman who headed up Walt Disney's commercial division. That means Walt Disney had a, a woman film executive back in the 1950s. After Sleeping Beauty in 1959, I know the animation department was in a very tough spot. And while Roy Disney may have been considering shutting down the animation division, I know that Bill Peet had gotten production underway on one of my absolutely favorite movies, and that's 101 Dalmatians, which came out in 1961. Cruella de Vil, Cruella de Vil, if she doesn't scare you, no evil thing will. They had to find a way to make the movie in, in a cheaper, more effective way. And from my understanding, the company laid off most of its animators at the time from 500 down to 75. And luckily, you made the cut, so you were still there. Could you speak about the importance of a movie like 101 Dalmatians in the history of Disney? And what does it mean when the Xerox process is introduced to keep costs to a lower level? Well, yeah, this is all about the uh, economics of the animation business. 
keep in mind we had around 500 people working on Sleeping Beauty. And that's because that film was mainly a handmade film. That's why we needed so many artists. Every frame of film was pretty much drawn by hand. You can imagine the cost on a film like that. 500 artists working over a period of five to six years, that is a lot of money spent. Now, what 101 Dalmatians gave us was the opportunity to use a new technology. It doesn't seem all that new today, but back then, that new technology was called the photocopy process, Xerox. And by using Xerox, that enabled us to make the uh, 101 Dalmatians a lot faster and a lot cheaper. On top of that, it was a, it was a darn good film, and audiences liked it. It stands the test of time. Now, I don't know how close you work with him, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the work of a man uh, you know, whose art I love very much, and that is Walt Paragoy, who worked as a background artist. Specifically, you know, I, I think of his renditions of London and 101 Domations. They're absolutely stunning. And I was wondering if I could ask, what kind of contributions did you think Walt Paragoy's color boards brought to the production of the movie? Walt Paragoy was a remarkable Disney artist, uh, a, quite a colorful character in his own right. Walt Paragoy was a good friend. I have to say I spent many uh, happy hours with Walt. He was not only a great artist, a great painter, but he was a, uh, he was a very colorful personality, and he had uh, his own opinions. He was quite outspoken. Yeah. There's, there's no doubt about that. Uh, Walt did not hide his opinions. So he was, he was quite a character. Regarding his work, uh, he certainly contributed to Sleeping Beauty, uh, working uh, right along Ivan Earl. But on the next film, uh, Walt kind of took over and became the, uh, the color stylist, or the art director of the 101 Dalmatians. And of course, uh, as you said, his beautiful work, his paintings of London, his remarkable stylings, his uh, color palette, just fantastic work. And the film at the time, after slogging through uh, Sleeping Beauty for about five years, it was so uh, refreshing and charming to move on to a more uh, contemporary film like the 101 Dalmatians that gave us a, a lighter touch, a more contemporary feel, and a great new look provided by Walt Perigoy. So Walt certainly made a major contribution to that film. It's it's really fantastic work, and I really invite listeners to check it out. If we could talk for a moment, I was so intrigued to find out about a place in the animation department called The Morgue, which we promise listeners is not as morbid as it sounds. Now, this is an archive where, from my understanding, you as an animator could easily check out and bring up to your desk any kind of drawings and animations and frames which had been saved from movies as early as Snow White. And I was wondering what your relationship with the place is and what were some of your favorite animation cells and drawings to check out during your time at Disney? Yeah, well, you know, the morgue, as it was called back then, uh, was simply a repository of all of the Disney art that had been done over the years, long before I arrived at the Walt Disney Studio. The drawings and sketches uh, from films such as Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Pinocchio and Fantasia, all of this fantastic artwork was archived in a basement underneath the Ink and Paint building, an area they call the morgue. Now, today, it's a good deal more sophisticated, up to date, certainly in terms of the uh, technological achievements because of the way we can uh, 
store things, protect things, and archive artwork is a good deal more sophisticated than just the artwork stacked on shelves. But what it did afford for us young artists the opportunity to go to the morgue and search for a scene, say, from Pinocchio. We wanted to see the original sketches of Jiminy Cricket. And that gave all of us fantastic access to the Disney treasures of years past. One more project I wanted to ask you about. I wanted to ask you about The Jungle Book, on which you worked as a story artist with Van Scary. And the reason I specifically bring it up, it's because, you know, I, I think of it as a very special opportunity to be working in a room with Walt Disney himself. This is years after you started at Disney and you've come back. And I love the idea of, of you guys being in a room and rearranging boards and looking at drawings and sometimes Walt perhaps being displeased with the work. What was the process of pitching ideas to him and how do you let creativity flow in a room like that? <laughs> well, the story development process uh, in animation, it's always a very exciting process, a very challenging process. <laughs> A very daunting process, to be sure, because you are creating and planning and, and, and building a narrative. So it's a, it's a very creative process, and it's one that I honestly never thought I would take part in. Keep in mind, I came to Disney to be an animator. I certainly respected uh, the writers and the story artists because, after all, they created the story. But I never thought I would be any good at that job. Well, lo and behold, after being at the Disney studio for at least a decade, Walt Disney decided that uh, perhaps I should be in the story department. And so I ended up working on story on the Jungle Book. Not by choice and not by decision. It certainly came uh, as, a, as a complete surprise to me. But what that gave me was the opportunity to work with Walt Disney himself. Now, how many people get an opportunity like that? Out of hundreds of people at the Walt Disney Studio, to be able to sit in the same room with Walt Disney, a man who was a story master. So I like to tell people I learned storytelling from the story master himself. You know, with limited time, I'm, I'm putting a lot of focus on talking about Disney movies, but... I really do think of you beyond as, you know, an animator, you're a storyteller, you know, you continued through your life and still now to work on such a variety of projects and even past the Jungle Book, I'm going to skip ahead by a lot of years right now, but I was amazed to look at credits by yourself, you know, working on movies like, you know, The Hunchback of Notre Dame or Toy Story 2, where you're welcomed back into a process partially as a writer and, and as a storyboard artist. And that fascinated me, the idea of exploring story in a visual way and letting, you know, possible gags and characters come to life. So how did that inform your process of telling stories in a visual way where you have nothing to go off and, and the sky is the limit? <laughs> well, I think uh, when you're given the opportunity to become a story artist, uh, essentially a visual storyteller, uh, you take that opportunity and you make the most of it. Now, keep in mind, as I said, I had never had any intention to being a writer. This decision was made not by me, but by Walt Disney himself. But once I found myself in the store department, I thought, well, I might as well learn how to do this job and do it to the best of my ability. So I, I dug in, and I began writing, and I began to learn. And I often tell my students, uh, you learn how to write by writing. 
that's how you learn your craft. You have to do it. You have to use it. Uh, a number of decades have uh, since passed, and uh, I'm still writing. So I guess once you are a storyteller, you never stop being a storyteller. I thought of wrapping up this little Disney segment. There are so many amazing, amazing Disney classics. If you could pick one or two, what from your memories and your emotional relationship with them, what would be some of your favorite Disney classic films, and why do you think you connect with them so much? Oh yeah, well you know I've often been asked what's your favorite Disney film, and it it's really difficult, but I can. Say certain things stand out in my mind as I look back over the years. I think one of the most masterful films uh, created by Walt Disney and his talented team was Pinocchio. What is your name? Pinocchio. Pinocchio. P I N U O P I. We're wasting precious time. Come on to the theater. Just a gorgeous film. That showed the Walt Disney artists at, at you know at the top of their game. The film was just beautiful. A beautiful example of storytelling, art direction, animation, music, everything about Pinocchio was just marvelous. I looked at the film Dumbo, uh, kind of like the opposite of, of Pinocchio, and that Dumbo was a very simple film, a very simple storyline but a story that has so much heart and that resonates with audiences even to this day. Uh, Dumbo, just a masterful film. I can't help but uh, mention The Jungle Book because for me, it was my first opportunity to work with Walt Disney. And not, not just work for Walt Disney, but work with Walt Disney. And that made The Jungle Book significant. And finally, I would have to add to my list, Toy Story 2, because I look at that film as one of the most complex storylines I've ever worked on, and a film that uh, has heart, that has uh, emotional resonance, it has a great storyline, a great character development, and it's probably one of the more sophisticated films I've ever worked on. Keep in mind, this is a, a kid's film, that even though it's about toys, these are effective metaphors that tell us about life. So Toy Story 2 is one of my favorite Disney Pixar films. I'm so glad to hear that. And I still remember going to see it. I think it's one of the most memorable examples where a sequel is just as good, if not better, continuing the legacy of the original movie. And when you mentioned Pinocchio, you know, I was very lucky. I, I you know, I thought I would tell you. Uh, a couple of years ago, I got to visit a little village in, in Germany, which apparently was the base ground, you know, for the design of the entire Pinocchio village. And it just, the more I hear you speak and think about the fact that especially Snow White at the end of the 30s and then Pinocchio, which came right after, how interesting was it, not just from a, you know, a selection of story standpoint, but the European influence, it, you know, visually, that it had on these environments. It's, it's amazing. Well, yeah, yeah, I think Walt Disney was really influenced by his travels to Europe. And uh, a lot of the Disney classic films are basically European fairy tales, you know, and, and uh, that history and, and the culture is so much a part of, of Walt Disney films. I think over the years, we've probably become more diversified as we began to move away. Uh, that's why 
when we did, did 101 Dalmatians, it was such a uh, change from the uh, the early Disney films that were mainly European fairy tales and moved to contemporary London to tell a story. Uh, I think that's why 101 Dalmatians was so uh, was such a unique change. Pongo boy, take it easy. What's all the hurry? <laughs> The reason I got to talk to you today is because I first learned about your story through a beautiful documentary, which I really invite everyone genuinely go check it out because I watch it a second time in preparation for this. And it's called An Animated Life by our good friends, filmmakers Eric Sharkey and Michael Fiore. And, you know, rather than asking you when you were first approached and everything, I, I wonder... Now that you have been through the experience, what did this documentary teach you about yourself once it was over and you got to sit down and enjoy it, hopefully on a big screen? Well, you know, it's one of those things that uh, I've always loved documentaries. And having said that, I never considered there would ever be a documentary about me and about my life and career. So right off, that that is quite a surprise. I love the medium. That's why I was so... Um, I was so open about the whole process. I didn't want to uh, color anything or hide anything or sugarcoat anything about my life. I wanted to basically give my life over to the filmmakers and let them tell the story they wanted to tell. I'm very pleased with their work. You guys did take a chance and choose to tell this story in such a, as you said, an honest and transparent and emotional way. There's so much in the documentary that we didn't get to touch on today. As I said, you're a storyteller. You have been a filmmaker. You continue to be a filmmaker. And I really do invite people to check it out. I love how passionate you are. So allow me to wrap things up with a wonderful quote. Quote, what keeps me going is I love the work I do. I've always had a passion for this crazy business. I've always embraced the chaos and just had the love for making films, making art, and that's what I do. Even now, I don't feel that much different from the moment I turned 30. So 80, I'm looking forward to 90. Why not? Allow me to ask you, what keeps you so passionate about art in general? And what is the conversation like with yourself in regards to the work you have produced and the work you're still looking to produce? I think it's just the creative spirit. Uh, I think people who are creative have something over those who are not. It's what seems to give life its meaning. I just spent a, a week uh, traveling, uh, spending time with students. And when I gathered together with creative people, and these are young boys and girls, young men and women, and they are creating music and art and their writing and their acting and directing. That creative energy is what makes life special. And by being a creator and, and spending my life around creative people, it's just enriched my life so much that I cannot even imagine life without creativity, without art, without music. Floyd, you have inspired and encouraged young artists in more ways than you know. And let me say thank you on behalf of everyone for sharing your story with us. I encourage listeners to go check out the documentary. I encourage to read more about your story. And I want to say again, thanks for coming on the show. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. And there you have it, folks. I would like to thank Floyd for calling in and for filmmakers Michael Fiore and Eric Sharkey for helping us set up this conversation. If you like the podcast, please take a moment to rate, 
share, and subscribe. We appreciate all of your support and want to continue to bring you new conversations. Also, our buddy Eric is doing a kick-ass job mixing these things, and we need to remind him just how much we love him. Thanks again, and stay tuned for upcoming episodes. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access.